0: Welcome to The Bunker, your Need to Know on News & Politics seven days a week. I'm Seth Table. Partisan politics are tearing our country apart. We're going to have to set aside our differences. Together we can lead America into a new golden age. Those are not the words of a real politician or philosopher, but of Bill Clinton and Bob Dole in a classic 90s episode of The Simpsons, summing up the common view that partisanship is something to be avoided. When that was said three decades ago, it seemed that partisanship was already at an all-time high, or low, depending on your opinion. But it has only grown more extreme since then. Recent studies have looked at the rise of hyperpartisanship and of negative partisanship, with voters less inclined to listen to those with the different opinions and more inclined to define themselves in opposition to a party. In the last 50 years, we've seen a drop in voters switching in a US presidential election from 27% in 1972 to just 7% in 2020. But is partisanship really a modern phenomenon? Here to discuss it is H.W. Brands, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and a prolific author on American history. Brands's latest book, Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling of American Politics, explores the very earliest years of the United States and how far from being a golden age that was disinterested in parties, it paints a picture of how American history was steeped in partisanship from the beginning. Welcome to The Bunker, Professor Brands.
1: Delighted to be with you.
0: I want to start by looking at how partisanship has often been used as a term of abuse. But is there a case to be made for parties and for partisanship?
1: Well, I certainly hope so, because at least in American history, it's been with us from the very beginning. And I will add that for all of the complaints leveled against partisans and partisanship, we survived it. There have been a few big breaks in American history, but for the most part, we've muddled our way through. So it's been with us from the beginning. It's probably going to be with us till the end, and we hope the end is far away. So partisanship, I would say, it seems to be inevitable in a democratic system of competitive politics. And I think it is less baneful than people think. First of all, I should say that everybody blames the other side for partisanship. Almost no one owns up to partisanship themselves. And so it allows people to complain about partisanship without feeling any obligation to change their own behavior. But the other thing is that when The parties and when we speak of partisanship at least in american politics we're talking about emphasis on parties and the belief that parties put their own interests ahead of the interests of the nation as a whole so that's the term we're using Mm -hmm. i should say the part that people really don't like about partisanship or i should say the part that really does the most damage in partisanship is when the parties themselves allow themselves to be taken over by their extreme elements and that's really the situation in the united states lately now there's a tendency in this in partisan Politics in, in politics generally, the people who are most convinced of their righteousness have the loudest voices and are most, most committed to having their way. The moderates often do get drowned out. But if you can find a balance within the parties between the moderates and the extremists, then partisanship or parties themselves don't necessarily have to be a bad
0: thing. And that's really important, actually, I suppose, differentiating not only party from partisanship, but the different grades of partisanship in that way. Right.
1: And I would add that the striking thing about American politics and American party politics in the last half century is, in fact, the very takeover of each party by its more extreme wing through most of American history. First of all, Amer- American politics has always been characterized by two political parties. They've changed names over time and they've reconfigured a little bit. But there have always, from the very beginning, there have been two parties. And most of this reflects the fact that laws have to be passed with a 51% majority. So people who lean in the direction of saying yes on this policy, they gather together and they form this group. Now, what makes them a party is that this grouping persists over time. But that's only natural because they Presumably have a common philosophy. The first parties, they didn't call themselves parties Mm -hmm. yet, really emerged over the binary choice of shall we ratify this new constitution or not. And so it's quite understandable that we would have two parties and not five or six. It wasn't a multiple choice test. It was the equivalent of a true false test. Yes or no. And that's what it comes down to every time a bill is proposed in the legislature. That's really what it comes down to in our system of elective politics, where we choose majority candidates, the first past the post, you have to get a majority. We don't have proportional representation in the United States. So 10% doesn't do you any good, 48% doesn't do you any good, you've gotta get 51%. And so it gravitates the, the system in the direction of gathering in these large groups, so basically two groups. But for most of American history, the two groups, both of the groups, and I'll call them Republicans and Democrats, because these have had the longest tenure in American history. They were always, each one was a coalition of comparative liberals and comparative conservatives. And some of this was historical legacy. Some of it was regionalism. But the fact is that until the 1960s. The Democrats were mostly liberal, but they had a strong conservative wing, especially in the American South. And the Republicans were mostly conservative, but they had a liberal wing, liberals on the West Coast in some places in the Midwest, in the Northeast. But what happened in the 1960s was the National Democratic Party embraced civil rights and in doing so alienated conservative white Southerners who from a strictly philosophical standpoint, were more akin to Republicans than they were to the Democrats to whom they had long been attached because of bad memories from the Civil War and Reconstruction era. And since that time, there has been a filtering out of the two parties so that in the 1960s, there was an overlap between the two parties. By the 1990s, when the sifting out ended, there was no overlap anymore. So the most liberal Republican was more conservative than the most conservative Democrat.
0: You mentioned the very first parties of sorts were really around the questions of whether to ratify the U.S. Constitution or not. What were the motivating sort of philosophies and factors behind that?
1: After the Revolutionary War, after the American victory in gaining independence from Britain, Americans had to figure out what to do with the existing government that they had. There was a very loose confederation at the national level. It was governed by the Articles of Confederation. And then there were existing state governments. So the United States of America was essentially originally a military alliance. It wasn't a unified country. There were these 13 states that came together to fight for independence against Britain, and they won. And then the question is, how do we go forward with these governments we've got? And during the war, there were many people including the likes of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who were quite dissatisfied with the ability of the central government to mobilize the resources of the states in pursuit of the national goal of independence. And from that moment, they were thinking, we need to revise our system of national government. We need to revise the Articles of Confederation. Meanwhile, there were people at the state level, state officials, governors, people just living in the states, who thought, this is fine. We needed this alliance during our war against Britain, but Virginians would say, well, I I like the government of Virginia. New Yorkers would say, I like the government of New York. Americans had created these Republican governments, and there was a common belief that Republican governments, governments by the people themselves, worked best, maybe worked only, if the governments were relatively close at hand, if you could know the people that you elected, if you could keep your eye on what they were doing in the state legislature. So on the one hand, there was a group that wanted a stronger, more robust central government. These are the ones in favor of the Constitution. And there were those who were suspicious of any gravitation of power, any, as they saw, theft of power from the states to this new central government. And the former were the federalists. They wanted the constitution. The, the latter were the anti-federalists. They didn't want the new constitution.
0: How much do you think the fears of the anti-federalists were borne out by subsequent events or not?
1: Well, going by American politics today, there are plenty of people on the conservative right who think that the national government has long been out of control and they would like to dial things back. Now, it's a little bit misleading to compare today to two centuries ago because two centuries ago the national government for that matter the state governments were very small compared to what governments are today so if somebody for example alexander hamilton he was the arch supporter of a stronger central government he wanted a stronger central government than existed in 1787 Would he have been a fan of the central government of the United States today, which is, depending on how you would measure it, 50 times stronger and larger than the central government was in that day? It's really hard to say. But a lot of it has to do with one's level of comfort with simply power itself. And Hamilton was a fan of power. The more power he had, the more power the government had, the better. People who were suspicious of power and and people have been and are suspicious of power in all ages. And if you are of that philosophy, you tend to want to keep government small, That
0: better to control it. Do you think the anti-federalist views were vindicated in that way? I mean, how did they go about questioning the very legitimacy of the Constitution? Because that was a, a big campaign that they launched.
1: It was. But there's something also that's important to bear in mind. Mm-hmm. There had been a serious and violent difference of opinion during the Revolutionary War between those in favor of an independent America and those who wanted continued attachment to Britain. And so the latter were the loyalists, they lost. And at the end of the war, most of the obvious loyalists sailed away with the British troops. And so all of those who remained were in favor of an independent America, and nearly all of those were inclined in some ways to give credit, to lend confidence to The new government the central government because it was as the united states of america not as 13 separate states that they had won independence and so the federalists the ones in favor of the constitution they had an advantage going in but on the other hand there were still those who said wait a minute if we make the government stronger than it is aren't we simply taking us back in the direction of britain and the kind of oppressive control that britain as a colonial power had over the united states is it any good as some of the real critics would say, to trade King George III for King George Washington
0: I. And there were other issues that panned themselves out at that same time. You have things like the creation of a national bank. I mean, how did that divide into party? Questions.
1: Ah, so behind all of this, there is a process of modernization that's going on. And many of the people who were suspicious of greater government power, were also suspicious of the process of modernization. So banks essentially did not exist in the United States before the 1780s. And a lot of people were suspicious simply of banks because they looked around and said, okay, money goes into the bank and money comes out of the bank and the bankers for doing nothing that we can see, they wind up wealthy. It would turn out very shortly that pretty much in every community, bankers were about the richest folks in town and farmers in particular who felt, you know, we don't like banks, we don't want banks, we don't want banks to spread, they were suspicious of the idea of a national bank, for heaven's sakes. A bank was bad enough on economic terms, but then to cloak it in the power of the national government, this was intolerable. Now, in fact, America did get its national bank, the the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton, but for three generations, Americans of a certain persuasion, the skeptics, they remain convinced that this was, this had been a power grab by the centralizers like Hamilton, by the merchant classes, and by the cities. And so, again, behind this, there is also a city versus country kind of split. There is an agrarian versus commercial, and then eventually
0: industrial split. We tend to to speak a lot more, I think, with hindsight about the Federalists and their vision for the US than we do about the Anti Federalists. Do you think that's more a case of history having been written by the victors?
1: To some degree, it's simply a quirk of branding. Hmm. Because if you're called anti something, you're starting out at a disadvantage because you define yourself by this thing that you're opposing. Now, the Anti Federalists, not uniformly, but they essentially became the Jeffersonian Republican Party, which was much better, brain because everybody in the United States accepted, bought into the idea of a republic. Those who didn't, those were the loyalists who left. So Republican Party, nobody could complain about that labeling. But it is the case that the Republicans, they tended to be skeptics. They tended to favor the status quo, they thought. But they didn't like the idea of growing power at the center of American government because they thought that power would be used to their detriment and perhaps to the detriment of the United States.
0: Now We've been looking at questions of power, questions of principle and parties that are very much grounded in principle. But how much do you think – personalities play an issue into all of this as well. You've already mentioned quite a few big personalities among the founding fathers.
1: Ah, well, personal ambition, personal suspicion, all these personal traits, they do play a large role in this. And so the two figures that I focus on, and you mentioned them when you read the subtitle, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams. So Hamilton and Madison were the drivers of the movement to do away with the Articles of Confederation and create a new constitution. At that time, when they were working in tandem, they were both in favor of strong central government. But Hamilton was the more personally ambitious of the two. This new government was going to be his vehicle for attaining respect, attaining wealth, attaining glory. And none of these ambitions were particularly unlaudable. I mean, that's that's fine. Ambitious people gravitate to what they do. But Hamilton had a habit of rubbing people the wrong way. His, his ambitions he wore on his sleeve. People could suspect that when Alexander Hamilton was advocating a national bank, of which he was going to be in principal charge because he was a secretary of the treasury, that this would be something that Hamilton would use to advance his power. James Madison, who had been originally as much an advocate of a stronger central government, Madison, more than any single person, was the author of the federal constitution, the one that was ratified. But Madison soon began to think, well, gee, what have we created here? Have we created a monster, particularly when he saw the personal ambition in Hamilton push to the fore? And Hamilton kept coming up with these bright ideas that we're going to enhance the power of the federal government, enhance his power at the center of the federal government. So Madison gradually gravitates away. Madison did not lack ambition himself, but it was a quieter ambition, mm. and it wasn't so off-putting as Hamilton's was.
0: I want to ask about a, a brighter side of personality than ambition and really focus on um, one in particular, and that's George Washington. He had a number of, shall we say, outsized personalities he dealt with, both within his administration and without. Do you think there are any lessons to be learned today in how he managed to work with these people against each other or how he got through that?
1: Well, connecting with your previous question, it's important to figure out what Washington's personal stake in this. And in fact, it was less personal in some ways than any of the others because Washington was older. Washington already had a national, indeed, an international reputation. For Washington, being president of the United States was not the sum of his ambitions. For him, it was kind of a victory lap. He had to be talked into being president. He knew that history would remember him and remember him fondly as long as he didn't screw up too much as president. So it's important to keep that in mind. So Washington could hold himself aloof. He could hold himself above parties, even as these parties were beginning to congeal, to take form Within his administration, with Hamilton leading the Federalist Party and Jefferson leading the Republican Party, Washington professed to remain above the fray. Now, in fact, his policies leaned closely toward those of Hamilton. So. In philosophy, Washington was a Federalist, but he refused to say that he was, and he eschewed the idea that politics should have any permanent place. Indeed, in his farewell address, when he decided to resign after two terms as president, and I should add, the reason he decided to resign after two terms as president, was he got fed up with the politics (laughs) and the fact that people of the Jeffersonian side were criticizing him, not simply for his policies, but for his Personal temperament and for things that he did. And he thought, this is outrageous. I didn't sign up for this. But in leaving office, he warned Americans against excessive devotion to parties and also against foreign entanglements. These are the two things Mm -hmm. his farewell address is remembered for. So Washington managed to keep a lid on the emergence of these parties. So the partisan warfare was largely guerrilla warfare until Washington left office. And then it burst out in the open. And it burst out in the open because Whereas Washington was elected president effectively by acclamation twice. The third election for president in 1796 was actually contested, and it was contested by John Adams, then the nominee of the Federalist Party, and Thomas Jefferson, the leader of the Republican Party. And so party politics bursts out in the open as soon as Washington leaves the scene.
0: I wanted to ask you something as a historian working through very well-studied periods of time like this, even though they're quite thoroughly documented, how much of a challenge is it that there are, shall we say, rose-tinted spectacles sometimes looking on these historical events?
1: I would say that if you consult the sources from the individuals themselves, and this is the approach that I take, and it's also been rendered a lot easier. By the fact that nearly all of the sources, the extant sources from that era, are available online. There were no rose-tinted glasses that Jefferson used to evaluate Hamilton, Mm. or Hamilton Jefferson, or Hamilton Adams, for that matter. And so if you look at what they were saying about each other, you would not be under any illusion that this was a generation of demigods or Mm -hmm. that they were above reproach. They reproached each other with every second breath.
0: Yes, and that's very much reflected in the book. There's a lot of direct quotation at length and really letting them speak in their own words. I wanted to go back to the question of party. I mean, we tend to think of the parties as, as reflecting shared principles, but can we talk about some of the other things that might contribute to a sense of party? I mean, rhetoric, for example, and you know, shared language. How much does that matter, for instance?
1: What happens during this early period is the American political classes figure out the language that they're going to use. What do they even call these parties? So the term that was used for parties as they existed in Britain before the war was factions. I mean, this was the the term that was used in Britain, but also Americans adopted that. And so when they spoke of what we call parties, they initially called them factions. And these factions were essentially coalitions among members of legislatures, among members of the political classes. And the factions reflected common experience, common interests. So merchants tended to gather together, farmers tended to gather together, city folks and and so on. Sometimes religion uh, overlapped all of this. In fact, during the period that I focus on, the 1780s and 1790s, almost nobody is really using the term party yet. And furthermore, they use the term faction as a term of opprobrium against their enemies. It's going to be quite a while in American, for, in American politics before the concept of the necessity of an opposition party and the value of an opposition party sets in. And during this period, the opposition are those bad people, and they are a party, and they engage in factional and partisan behavior. On our side, we're just the good people, and we have the national interest at heart. So the concept, the real acceptance of party politics is going to take a while to set in. And I should add that at times and in places, it never has. So if you look at American politics today, there are very few Democrats who will say, What we really need is a stronger Republican party. And you almost never say, What we need the Republicans to say the same thing about the Democrats, because they each hope that by weakening the other party, by discrediting the other party, they'll benefit their own party. It's really only on certain occasions when you realize, OK, We need that other party, if only to impose discipline on members of our own party.
0: Yes, and I suppose you find when parties have had particularly long runs of controlling one House of Congress or the White House, that doesn't necessarily make for good government if you've been in office for over a decade, let's say.
1: Oh, there's certainly something that sets in, that there are ambitions always in politics, and people are tempted to cut corners. People are tempted to line their own pockets. And if there are two healthy and active parties, and the parties tend to keep watch on the other, if one of the parties disappears, and this has happened three times in American history, where the previous party disappeared, then there's nobody to keep check on their own party. And very often, even within parties, there's this sense of competition. And so to jump ahead to the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt ran for president four times as the nominee of the Democratic Party. And as much as that was opposed by Republicans, it was also this, the third and fourth times were opposed by other Democrats because they thought, okay, we waited patiently in line, now it's our turn. Roosevelt, get out of the way. So you see this in moments, well, the clearest case in American history is when. The federalist party disappears and the republican party over. and there's a 10-year period that has been given the inapt label the era of good feelings well it was <laughs> labeled this by a leader of the surviving party but it was unstable it didn't last because even though everybody called themselves a republican the republican party quickly broke into about three or four different factions and so competition and this is again the essential lesson as long as the politics is competitive then people have an incentive to compete. The time when you don't have partisanship is when you have one party rule where there is no competition. And plenty of Americans would like to think, boy, it'd be great if we would do away with partisanship. But the only way you do away with partisanship is to do away with competitive parties. There's no partisanship in China. Well, there aren't any competitive politics in China. Mm -hmm. So if partisanship ever disappears, then that's gonna be a symptom of something far worse.
0: And and these are very much Lessons, I suppose, from what we call within the, the first party system of the U.S. But do you think that is the main lesson to be learned in terms of the value of party and partisanship or the upsides of it as well as the downsides?
1: So on the positive side, parties provide a way of organizing disparate groups. We live in America. Where we're 335 million people. And how are you going to mobilize these different people, these different voices to get an answer? for basic questions. Should we do this or that? And as I mentioned, when bills come before Congress, it's a yes or no. And so how do you how do you do this? Parties have provided the way that we nominate candidates. Now, this is important because the Constitution of the United States says nothing about nominating candidates. It sort of imagines that candidates will just show up and then people will choose among them, which might have been feasible In the days when America were only four million people living in the United States and in the the political class, it was much smaller than that, so everybody knew everybody else. But in a country as large as the United States today, something like parties has to do this recruiting, has to do this organizing. So that's the positive aspect of parties. Parties impose a certain discipline within Congress. So you know that the Republicans are going to be led by their leader and the Democrats by their leader. Now we're seeing. Among Republicans in the House of Representatives today, what happens when you can't figure out who your leader is and things just grind to a halt? So that's the upside. That's the positive side of parties. The downside of parties is that people are tempted to put the interest of the party ahead of the interest of the nation. But that leaves the question unanswered. Well, what is the interest of the nation? That's exactly what parties thrash out. So as long as you have two parties, each one can keep the other in check. And so Republicans think the national interest is here and the Democrats think it's over there. And when parties are working, the way we go is somewhere between those two views. Now, when the parties are taken over by the extremists, as has been the case in the United States increasingly in the last 30 years, then that doesn't happen because you get in a situation where the extremists would rather continue to have the problem than have a solution to the problem because they benefit from the sense of controversy, the sense on both sides that the country is going to hell in a handbasket.
0: Thank you very much, Bill.
1: My pleasure. Good to talk to you.
0: H.W. Brown's book, Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling of American Politics, has just been published and is available from all good booksellers from the good folk at Doubleday. And if you enjoyed the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, Paper Cuts, and our new science podcast, Why. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hello,
1: I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's oh god, what now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Bear, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann, Ramirez. Out now wherever you get your podcasts. the bunker usa was written and presented by seth tavor the producers were chris jones and eliza davis beard with audio production by me jade bailey the managing editor is jacob jarvis and the group editor is andrew harrison with music by kenny dickinson and artwork by jim Parrott, the bunker usa is a podmasters production